WDBM East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello, this is Arts Editor Skylar Ashley taking over for Burl Schwartz. On today's show, we're going to talk with Delia Krupp, transgender actress and LGBTQ rights advocate. Krupp has been acting on stage professionally for more than 40 years and was the first transgender actress to portray Charlotte von Mausdorf in Doug Wright's Pulitzer and Tony Award-winning play, I Am My Own Wife. And now she's making her film debut in the motion picture Landlocked, which is being screened at the East Lansing Film Festival on Sunday, November 14th at 6.30 p.m. at Studio C in Okemos. I talked to her about the film and her role in it. Let's check out our conversation. I primarily want to talk about the film Landlocked, which will be screening at the upcoming East Lansing Film Festival. And that is a film which tells the story of a man who reunites with his long estranged uh, transgender um, father and their journey to scatter um, his wife, his mother's ashes off the Georgia coast. Um, for starters, how did you get involved with the project? This is your first role in a um, motion picture film. How did you get on board with Landlocked? How did you find this project? Um, a mutual friend. Well, actually, the director didn't know her. It's, uh, there's a transgender um, sort of a talent agent, sort of just a really well-connected person on the West Coast. And uh, Tim, I believe, had reached out to her and uh, gave my name and a few other names to him. And uh, he reached out to me and then uh, sent a script. Um, not this script, but a, like, a, no, like a monologue I think he'd written. And just said, yeah, if you could memorize that and put it on... Uh, put it on your phone on video and I'll take a look at it and uh, I think it was almost like two or three months before I heard back and this would be in the summer of 2018. Mm -hmm. um, now you've been acting on stage for a very long time now. I'm very first performing at age 19. Um, you were the artistic director of the Players Gallery that's MSU's official student theater group. Um, you continued to study theater in um, England, um, mm -hmm. acted with the Boar's Head Theater Group, you taught theater yourself, and you collected several accolades along the way. But as I mentioned, this is your first role, or this was your first role acting for a film. Um, what was it like, um, I guess, what was it like transitioning as a theater actor to a film actor? How was it different for you? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, well, a lot of it is the process before. Um, the uh, talent was all down in uh, Atlanta, the director, writer, um, and uh, Dustin, who plays my son. And uh, so we pretty much just had a lot of phone calls in lieu of rehearsals. Um, but the same kind of conversations you'd have in rehearsals, you know, about the relationships, um, uh, time, because a lot of time, of course, has passed in the backstory of this so that uh, you need to understand. Um, so by the time I got down there, which would have been in January of 2019, um, to start shooting, we'd had several months to talk, and I'd had a lot of time to live with the script, longer than you usually have with a 
original play, actually. And uh, on set, the big adjustment for me was, you know, the hurry up and wait aspect of it. It's kind of more like a tech rehearsal <laughs> where the big priorities are the location and the lighting and the acting is you know somewhere down the list but that means when it's time to shoot you've got to be you've got to be good some of the scenes you see in landlocked are one take or they use the first take at least out of maybe just two or three i don't think we ever had more than three takes to get it right so yeah yeah that's quite different um but see that your training as an actor for a large role such as this is to you know, get the whole, have a good grip on the whole story. But you don't just treat it as a scene at a time. Um, so um, if you ever shoot out of sequence or you're simply trying to wonder, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night and you're wondering, where are we in the story here? You've already done that work ahead of time. Um, even though you haven't actually acted out the rest of the story in real time just before, you you know what, where you are and things. Mm -hmm. So, so really, the theater training is really good preparation for this. I think. Mm -hmm. Can you describe the process you underwent in terms of really embodying or becoming this character? How did you um, familiarize familiarize yourself with the role, and you know really become one with it? What was, what was your technique? Well, quite honestly, there's not a lot of difference between Brianna's story and mine. Um, we both transitioned later in life. Um, I was in a relationship, no child, but I was in a relationship when I started mine as well. And uh, and it was, it was a process. Uh, generally speaking, not just everybody, but generally speaking, um, persons who transition later in life, it's, it can be a longer process and sometimes a more difficult one um, because you, however poorly it suited you in your previous gender role, in your previous life almost, uh, it's still the one you're familiar with and it's the identity that other people are familiar with. So in a sense, you almost have to transition out of one fairly established identity into another. And uh, and doing so in midlife is quite a bit different. Uh, finding a support group of people, uh, particularly, you know, back when I transitioned and when Brianna transitioned, there wasn't a transgender support group in every city necessarily. And... Uh, that you know that's that's a challenge finding good um, medical and uh, counseling care. Um, these are all things that are, I think, are they're important for a trans person of any age, but I think particularly for uh, an older trans person. So our stories were fairly similar. Um, the biggest change difference is that you no know, Brianna had uh, is a fairly religious person, and uh, her faith was a key part of her transitioning, I think. And uh, mm -hmm. that was probably the biggest leap in imagination, I guess, that I had to do right there. But uh, otherwise, not, 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 not all that much, <laughs> which is not unusual for the film world. 
generally because of the intimacy of the camera and the lack of rehearsal time, you generally want to bring as much of yourself and your own story to the role as you possibly can. And, and so that's, that's pretty much mm -hmm. what I did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Representation in the film and entertainment industry has been a massive talking point in recent years. Mm -hmm. um, how important do you feel it is, is it for um, transgender characters to be portrayed by transgender actors and actresses? Yeah, well, I, I feel it's quite important. Um, a great deal of my advocacy work has, has surrounded the entertainment industry in particular and that very issue that you've underlined, you know, where especially in larger budget films where they want uh, an established, uh, you know, star for the box office considerations, uh, cisgender people have played us. And um, I find that extremely problematic. I mean, there, there are some, one of the arguments too, besides marketability is, well, you know, we just don't have a transgender actor with that experience or ability. And of course that's, kind of a load of hogwash. <laughs> it's, it's a rationalization. Um, you know, I mean, when I started doing this part, I acted for almost 40 years, back to over 40 years at that point. And um, many transgender people have had a lot of experience, but not necessarily in their current gender, in, you know, when, before they transitioned. And besides, you know, you look at all of the I mean, how much how much acting experience did Nicole Kidman have, you know, when she was suddenly given this nice big juicy role, lead role in the 1990s? She had, you know, a lot less than I did. <laughs> so, you know, people have people have taken a gamble on lesser known actors in the past when they brought something necessary to the role, and uh, so that argument is specious. Yeah, for me, um, it's both representation and authenticity. Representation in that, you know, we deserve to be included at the table. We deserve to be in front of the uh, um, public's eye because, you know, we're a part of this world. And gosh knows, if you're uh, playing a transgender role, authenticity is also critical. There are there are nuances to being transgender that no amount of interviewing or having sitting down having coffee with a trans person is ever going to do for a cisgender actor. And there have been some fine performances, but I you know by trans by a cisgender people of trans experience, but there's always something missing. And there's several in some cases story points, you know, where a transgender actor would have sat down with the writer or director and go, uh uh no, that, that's not the way it would have been done. Um, I'm thinking particularly of a film called Trans America, Felicity Huffman mm -hmm. playing a male to female transgender person. And it's interesting, that film came out just about the time that I had just very much still in the closet, but, you know, it started to realize who I was and started to do a few things about it. And, Oh, I was just appalled. <laughs> um, just as one example of many. Um, Felicity, of course, is a cisgender female with a, kind of just a 
you know, average female voice in terms of pitch and timbre. And she decided that she was going to do the part with a deep male voice. So she went around oh, talking God. like this all the time. I don't know if you've seen the, seen the movie. It's, that sounds um, unnecessarily uh, corny. Yeah, it, it struck me as corny, and she wasn't even convincing as a cisgender male, which you know is what she was portraying, I guess, at the beginning, and uh, and so many other aspects. That was the case, particularly with the authenticity. And you know, and she consulted with you know a well-known transgender a performer. I mean, well-known in our circle out west. Mm-hmm. And uh, but there's only so far you can go again by talking and by creative osmosis, you know. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So both both the representation and the authenticity, I feel, are quite important. Mm-hmm. How has it felt to see Landlock um, make its way to so many different uh, cool and unique film festivals? not only here in the United States, but across the globe. Yeah. What's that been like for you? Isn't that cool? <laughs> it's been really mm-hmm. encouraging, yeah. Uh, we've had two festivals in Italy, and uh, one going on right now in Prague, Czechoslovakia, that we were selected for. And uh, one of the Italian ones, the one in Turin, Italy, um, uh, we won an award for uh, that was specifically, you know, for uh, transgender or gender-related works. And we felt really good about that. Yeah, it's very encouraging. Um, It's encouraging simply because, you know, the more people get to see our stories, particularly enacted by our performers, you know, the better it is. Um, I really think, whether performing or doing my advocacy work, that just my presence in the room or in this case, up on the screen, is the biggest part of people understanding, uh, developing an empathy, you know, just getting used to seeing us, uh, particularly in a role like this uh, in Landlocked, where the emphasis isn't on so much on our otherness, on the peculiarities of surrounding transition, for example, or uh, being uh, excluded I mean, Brianna feels somewhat excluded because it's been 23 years since she's been a part of her son's life. That's just a normal, not normal, but that's, that's, a, that's an experience that cisgender people do experience, you know, families that split. Mm-hmm. One of the parents doesn't see the child for a long time, and there's a, there's a bond that needs to be recreated. You know, and that's difficult, but it really isn't a function of being transgender. Being trans, you know, can complicate things to a bit, but for the most part, you know, um, we're just people. And we have some of the very same experiences everyone else does. And uh, I think it's good for a film like this to be out there to make that clear to audiences. Mm-hmm. What sort of feedback or response to your character and your performance have you received personally? Have people reached out to you directly um, to you know, let you know how they um, 
and how they were affected by your performance? What what sort of feedback have you gotten? Uh, yeah, um, I actually have had people kind of all over the world respond um, since we've had the streaming version available, to, you know, through some festivals. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been it's been very positive, um, both to the movie itself and uh, my performance. Um, I don't know what to say. I mean, yeah. I mean, some of them were friends, but many a times they were people I didn't know or that, you know, were able to step outside our friendship and, you know, talk professionally about things. And uh, I don't think I had too much to worry about having, you know, film technique and what it takes to act for a camera. I don't have too much of that to worry about <laughs> from what people have said. Um and I got one acting prize. For, it was it was in Chicago, so I was, uh, you know, the hometown girl. But um, here at the Blue Whiskey mm-hmm. Independent Film Festival, I got an acting award there for that. So, um, yeah, it's been encouraging. It's been very encouraging. Um, although this was something of a trial by fire, I guess you'd say, or a learning experience. I, I think I did well enough mm-hmm. to show that you know I can. I can do it again, <laughs> and I'd like to. <laughs> Very cool. You'll be appearing via a Zoom call at the East Lansing Film Festival to discuss Landlock, which will be streamed Sunday, November 14th at 6.30 p.m. at Studio C in Okemos. Um, How excited are you for that screening in particular? Oh, I'm really excited. Um the festival had reached out to me about traveling there and appearing in person, which would have been fantastic. But um, I don't know. I'm 65 now, and uh, the idea of spending 12 hours round trip on an Amtrak train, a crowded train, um, and, you know, my susceptibility to COVID. I've had some friends, Mm -hmm. uh, actor friends and other friends, that have been double vaccinated and they still got sick and they got very sick. Uh, most of them were my age, you know, late fifties, early sixties. And uh, I just didn't think it was as much as I wanted to be with everybody. I just didn't think it was worth the risk. And at the Blue Whiskey Independent Film Festival, which I did attend in person since it's like a mile and a half up the street from me here, and uh, before the de- before the Delta variant had actually gotten, you know, going, this had been like in the middle of July, um, we were able to be inside, masked, and uh, the directors of some of the other films of that evening, uh, the short films that preceded Landlock, uh, were zoomed in uh, in the same way that we're going to do at East Lansing. And, uh, they were able to have field questions from the audience. You could see them clearly. In their case, it wasn't projected up on the screen. It was on a fairly large screen, flat TV, but uh, it worked wonderfully. And so they didn't have to travel all the way from San Francisco or, gosh, one person I believe was overseas. They could, you know, right from the comfort of their room, um, be able to, you know, deliver the same kind of feedback and, and conversation. So I I suggested this to East Lansing, and they hadn't really mm-hmm. made any provision for that with any of the other films. But yeah, after a week, they got back to me, and I said, "Yeah, my tech people say we can do this, so we'd like to, we'd like to do the same for your film." 
So uh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I'm not sure if I. Well, I'm not sure if the director. Oh, I'm sorry. Will, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just saying. I'm not sure if the director will be a part of that conversation or not. I haven't been told yet, but I'll be there. And I do have several friends from high school that have lived in stayed in the area, and a couple of family members that will be in the audience as well. So I'm I'm quite thrilled. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks very much for setting aside some time to talk with me out of your busy schedule. And um, it was very interesting to learn more about you and learn more about the film. And I want to congratulate you on the success that the film has been having. And yeah, just thanks for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Skylar. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're listening to City Pulse on 88.9 FM, The Impact. I'm arts editor Skylar Ashley. Up next, we're going to listen to my interview with Jeremy Whiting, general manager of the radio station you're listening to right now. The Impact recently received the 2021 College Media Association Four-Year College Radio Station of the Year Pinnacle Award. That's a mouthful. It's the first time the station has received such an award. I talked with Whiting about the big accomplishment. Let's listen. Right off the bat, I just want to ask, how did you feel when you were first informed that Impact 89FM won the 2021 College Media Association Four-Year College Radio Station of the Year? Pinnacle Award. That's a really long title. <laughs> it really but is. How did you react to the news? Uh, it was uh, quite a shock. We were really surprised. We had entered the contest uh, earlier in the year, I think in June. And uh, the way those awards go, uh, you don't hear back for a while. So it wasn't really on our radar. And uh, then we got the news. And it's the first time that we ever won the award. So I was immediately texting all of our staff members, and we were just blown away. We really didn't expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, Impacting 9FM has won several regional awards and several you know, Michigan awards. Um, this is the first time that it's won you know, the whole thing on a national scale. Um, what, it is it, what is it about this year that you think um, – went differently? Was there something special about the material you were putting out, the chemistry between the staff? What was it about this year that went so well? Um, I I think one thing that felt a little different, there are two things really. Um, One was our staff. We had such a strong staff, and we always do, but it seemed like people were just trying that extra bit uh, over this last year because of the COVID pandemic. So even though for the most part, we weren't able to do a lot of stuff in person, uh, they were really engaging online in different ways and trying to make the best of the situation. And uh, outside of school work, I think the work at the radio station was one of those things that allowed them to connect with each other. And so they really went for it and tried to give it their all. So I credit the staff for that. And then, as I was talking about with the pandemic, I think we really tried some new things. Uh, We were still able to maintain our broadcast operations like we always do, but we couldn't be there in person as much. So we did a lot more uh, content online. We did a lot more on social media. We were doing talk shows (laughs) using Zoom uh, about all sorts of different topics. Uh, We were trying to do more web work, more articles, more video work. So anything that we could do to engage with our audience, which frankly was spread out 
farther from East Lansing than it ever has. We've broadcast online since the late 90s, but uh, really this last year, uh, a lot of our listening audience was tuning in from all over the country or world. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the aftermath of the coronavirus pandemic, which, of course, is actually still ongoing, but um, it sounds like the effects of that inadvertently, you know, caused some great inspiration there. Yeah, absolutely. We were excited to see a, a, a few new things start out. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, we did uh, a lot of video stuff. We started a new video series called Comic Concerts, and uh, that was where we went out outside of the studio and we looked for locations where we could do filming of uh, different musical acts uh, in socially distanced, uh, as safe as we could make them locations uh, where, you know, people were wearing masks and, and going by COVID guidelines uh, just to get some new content out. And they went really, really well. You know, the videos turned out great. Uh, they had great interviews, really great music uh, for our listeners to engage with. Um, so, you know, we were really just trying anything. And a lot of stuff I think is going to stick. I think a lot of it has been a great inspiration for our staff going forward of uh, different ways that we could do things, not just like in the typical things like meetings and, uh, you know, things like that, but really trying new uh, ways of delivering content. Mm-hmm. And I was curious, from your position, you're the general manager of the Impact 89 FM. Um, one second. I'm sorry. Somebody uh, tried <laughs> to call in. Let me rephrase my question. Sure. <clears throat> you, of course, are the general manager of Impact 89 FM. For yourself, what were some of the challenges um, you faced throughout uh, 2020 and 2021. Um, wh- how was your job affected? What what was it like for you managing the impact this past year? Yeah, for, for the most part, my job in, in so many ways was quieter, um, but there was still the same amount of work to do. So we, for the most part, couldn't have many people in studio uh, at all, you know, throughout the last year. But I could still go in. I I need to go in and make sure the equipment was still running and make sure, uh, you know, things were functioning as they should. Uh, so I'd go into the office and I'd get in there and I'd, I'd be alone or in front of a Zoom camera. So whether I was at home or in the office, either way, I was still communicating with staff over Zoom. So that was kind of weird uh, to be in the station, to have seen it for all those years with people every single day, coming in and out at all hours of the day and night. And then all of a sudden for just months and months, almost nobody was in there. Uh, we would go, I would go in the offices and I'd just kind of look around and see uh, things in, on the walls from people who never got a chance to take them off and had graduated or notes, you know, that were left uh, just a day or two before the pandemic and things shut down. And it was kind of, eerie in some ways, kind of like a a horror movie where there's an apocalypse or something and people just kind of left their stuff. Um, But at the same time, I was still connecting with them online. So it was a really uh, weird situation. I I feel very fortunate, though, uh, that we were able to, you know, do as much as we could. Uh, If you look back maybe five or ten years earlier, uh, if something like this would have happened then, uh, we wouldn't have been ready. Uh, The technology wouldn't have been there uh, for us to be able to do as much as we did. So, uh, 
you know, it was a, a really rough year for so many people. And, um, you know, I, I just count ourselves lucky that in so many ways we were still able to connect and, and do so much of what uh, we typically do, just in different ways. Not a lot of regions, or, or I should say the prototypical, prototypical college radio station, um, like many other traditional forms of media, faces so many challenges and, you know, is somewhat shrinking nationwide. I, I suppose, you know, and we're very privileged to have something like Impact 89 FM. Um, from your perspective, what do you think makes Impact so special and, you know, such a privilege for the uh, listeners here in the greater Lansing region? Yeah, I think you hit on it with the word privilege. It is a privilege to to be able to still do it. Uh, and it's the great support from not only the MSU community, but the Lansing community. So these awards kind of show, uh, you know, give a sense of, you know, how appreciated you are, how well you're doing. And uh, our staff feels that from all corners of the university and, and all throughout Lansing and our alumni base and, and former listeners <laughs> throughout the world, uh, we've received so many comments and, and personal messages uh, about these awards. And, and so that's one thing that um, I know we always have in our corner is is our listeners and our audiences, uh, the people who who love and support the impact. And uh, the students, the current students are always changing. We always have a new group of people coming through, uh, but they pretty quickly see that. They see that there's an overwhelming amount of support for the impact, uh, the long tradition, the legacy of the station that's been built up over the past 30-plus years just for the FM station. MSU Student Radio goes back to the 50s itself, but, um, you know, there are people like Gary Reed and, and Ed Glazer who came before me who just built such a strong, solid foundation that um, people want to make sure that it's there for the long run, and uh, that community support means everything. Well, that really wraps up the questions I had for you, Jeremy. Um, thank you very much for talking with me, and congratulations on the big award. Is there anything else you'd like to add um, for the Not, people out there? Any, any final thoughts? Yeah, once again, just thank you for the support. Keep tuning in. We're going to keep trying new stuff that uh, you're going to love, uh, and uh, we appreciate all the support. And, Skylar, thank you for uh, the chance to talk. And that wraps things up for us here at City Pulse on the Air on 88.9 FM, The Impact. I'm arts editor Skylar Ashley, and I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. I'd also like to thank Delia Kropp and Jeremy Whiting for talking with us today. We'll be back next week with a brand new show. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday, and this is Skylar Ashley for City Pulse, signing off.